Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou. I'm here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. Well, I say the same well. thing every time, every <laughs> well, time on, I do this. We're here, yes. Yeah, yeah. It, it really is a full show. Today we, is especially fun for one reason I know we're going to get to very soon. Yeah, it's going to be fun. We have great guests today. We have uh, George Samueli, who we haven't had in four or five weeks. Uh, lots to talk to him about uh, on um, on Ukraine. We have a guest who's going to talk to us about India. We have a guest who's going to talk to us about the new constitution in Chile, which is actually more interesting than than many people might realize. There's there's a lot going on in Chile. Uh, we have Juan Jose Gutierrez, who we haven't had for a little while. He's going to talk about immigration. And uh, and uh, there's there's a lot of other stuff. Sure I, I'm dying is. to get to the. Yeah, just get I'm to gonna, it. I'm going to jump get into to it. it. This is the most fun news of the day. I'm going to jump into it. Michelle, do you remember Malcolm Nance? I sure do. <laughs> I sure do remember remember him, Malcolm Nance, with uh, dubious professional credentials. Yes. I'll say. Malcolm Nance has been uh, a longtime talking head on MSNBC. He is a an intelligence officer. And for those of you listening on the radio, you didn't see me use the air quotes. Air quotes. Around intelligence for his officer. Life yeah. He claims to have what three, three and a half decades of experience as an 36 intelligence years, officer. it says in his Twitter bio. 36 okay, years in U.S. intelligence. 36 years. I met Malcolm Nance in 2000. That's 22 years ago now. I had taken a class at the CIA called uh, Advanced Counterterrorism Operations. I was serving overseas. I was called back to this is like one of those mid-career classes for those of us who were focused on counterterrorism. It sort of bumps you to the next level. We had no idea 9-11 was coming, but it, it was coming. So as part of this class, they gave us like a dozen books on terrorism. And I'm not going to read these books. I'm busy. I'm also cheap. Right. And so I put them on eBay. This is very funny. And I sold, I sold them for 50 lot. bucks. It's, the story says almost as much about you as it does about Malcolm Nance, honestly. That, that is one of the, you know, low-key funniest moments. Yeah. Give John a stack of books. I'm not reading these for my career. I'm busy. <laughs> get 50 bucks for them on eBay. So I sold them. And uh, I, I get an email from the guy and he says, hey, I, I'm the high bidder on your books. My name's Malcolm Nance. And I said, oh, OK. He said, I live in Arlington, Virginia. I said, oh, OK, I live in Arlington, Virginia. So instead of me mailing them, why don't I just, you know, meet with you and I'll just give them to you. OK, he says, we end up meeting at a bar in Roslyn here in Arlington. So I sit with the guy. I have all the books in a, in a big shopping bag. I give him the shopping bag. He starts bragging. Now, I was undercover at the time, so I never said anything about where I worked, why I had these books. The only thing he asked was, do you have an interest in terrorism? And I said, I said, yes. That's why I have these dozen books yes. on terrorism. <laughs> Just do you have an interest in terrorism also could mean so many things. Yes. <laughs> wink, wink. You know, it's, a, it's a really effective method sometimes. <laughs> wink, wink. And he bragged about his interest in terrorism and I could tell from the first 15 seconds of the of the conversation that he was faking it. He was in the Navy for a couple of years in Navy intelligence, which means nothing, literally nothing. Right. You're, you look at a map and you, well, this ship moved from here to here and that ship moved from there to there. Oh, that's intelligence. I better call the Pentagon. Right. Seriously. Mm -hmm. 
So I'm sorry, I thought naval intelligence were the like actually, you know, actually the serious guys. No. no? Okay. That's no. Fine. We actually used something to I heard mock sort of them. floating around in the ether. Okay. Yeah, so because he had an unusual name, Malcolm Nance, I sort of like in the back of my mind followed his career. He became more and more famous. Well, um, just after I started working here, uh, back in 2017, I gave an interview to uh, Wilmer Leon, who's now our colleague. Well, Wilmer also has a show on Sirius XM, and uh, it's, it's quite a good show. It's very, um, it's very serious, you know, very serious issues, and he gets lots of academics and attorneys and people like that. So he had Malcolm Nance on his show. And uh, afterwards, I ran into him here in the office and he said, hey, I had Malcolm Nance on my show on Saturday. And I said, right. And he says to me, the brother's faking it, isn't he? And I said, oh, yeah, he's faking it. I I knew 22 years ago he was faking it. Well, I get up this morning. I turn on the news like I do every morning, MSNBC. And here's Malcolm Nance wearing fatigues, Mm -hmm. holding an AK-47 and reporting from the Donbass because he decided that since he's a professional intelligence officer, that he needs to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. So this son of a gun has become a mercenary. Mm -hmm. He's older than I am, and I'm 57. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's (laughs) it's an interesting transformation. And you do wonder what is this? Is this about? Is this? Has he really like, you know, s- swallowed his own tail so deeply that he has come to fully believe you know in his, you know, to believe in this, to believe in his own credentials? What, or is there something else? Also, MSNBC being a little bit shady about how they refer to him. You're right. They were, uh, you know, a bunch of reporters who reported on this transformation after it happened. We're saying, by the by, MSNBC has told us, you know, he's no longer an analyst with them. He hasn't been for some time. Right. Didn't stop them from about 22 hours before this announcement, sharing on Twitter a clip of him. And I think well, I think he was in Western Ukraine, sort of pointing at cruise missiles or whatever, doing a little sort of oh, cosplay about, how, you know, they, they come in 30 second intervals or whatever. But they referred to him as a as as MSNBC political analyst or a terrorism analyst is what they said on the um, clip and then issued a correction and said, oh, no, actually, he's not affiliated with with the network. They're they like, they right. didn't realize that they had gotten rid of him or I mean, he had resigned or whatever it was. Having reporters embedded with the military and trying to, you know, hold on to some pretense of, of objectivity. But like talking, to, you know, just having the war delivered to you purely from combatants on one side. Right. Is is a problem if you want to understand the whole thing, is what I'll say. Yeah, that was I, that was the funniest news of the day. What can you say? Uh, I mean, uh, if he's actually, well, I mean, whatever. I, I we'll see. We'll see just <laughs> what kind of danger Malcolm Nance ends up finding himself faced with. But again, like this, not this is a real war. It's a real war. If you go there to volunteer, you could you could die. It's yeah, not. I don't know. That's it's, right. It, you know. I I my guess is he's going to stay as close to the Polish border as he possibly can. That's just me. A federal judge yesterday struck down the government's mask mandate for air travel, saying that the CDC had overstepped its bounds. That's not a terribly big deal in that the mandate was supposed to expire today anyway, and the White House was asking for a two-week extension. Um, 
The odd thing, though, is that a couple of airlines announced the lifting of the mandate mid-flight. Yeah. And passengers cheered and they took their masks off. I say it's odd because a lot of people bought tickets thinking that they're going to be protected on that flight. And then they weren't protected. I, you and I are probably going to take some flack for, for taking this position. I don't care. No, I think it's good. There it is. I, don't, no, I, I mean, again, I, I, I want to see public health measures in place that make sense, that are consistent and that do protect people and that don't, you know, just yep. throw people to the wolves. Agreed. I am happy to not be wearing a mask as often, but I, you know, don't want that to I, I want that to be based in in reality and based in sort of grounded public health data. Uh, but, yes. yeah, if you're someone, you know, the, it was there were passengers on a I remember one was a Delta flight and one was a JetBlue flight where yes. they made these announcements and said, OK, rip your masks off. And there were passengers saying, hey, man, like I'm here with my, I've got my baby. My baby yeah. can't wear a mask. I've got, you know, I'm with all these, you know young children who can't be vaccinated yet who have i have some reason to be concerned about and yeah you bought that ticket with an expectation that you were going to be in a certain environment and for it to change halfway through just sort of for funsies yes is really uh unprofessional and really thoughtless no matter how you feel about you know the the next flight the next Mm -hmm. ticket you purchase Mm -hmm. or the mandates themselves i think it's it's really uh yeah it is really thoughtless to change something i agree in the middle of things yep last month a sealed tomb was unearthed beneath the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris. I was fascinated by this Mm -hmm. report. The French Minister of Culture said that it was discovered 65 feet beneath the cathedral floor, and it's of significant scientific quality, and it's in surprisingly good condition. Archaeologists believe that it dates from the 14th century, and they're speculating that it may have been a bishop or um, a, uh, a clan leader from the 1300s. They were able to slip a fiber optic cable into a crack in the sarcophagus. And they said that the body remains intact, that the clothing and hair could be could be seen. And they saw what appeared to be plants that were placed in the the tomb along with the body. They intend to open the sarcophagus sometime in the coming days. And then we'll rebury it as they complete restoration of the cathedral. Remember that it was severely damaged in a terrible fire right. in 2019. Right, right. Repairs are supposed to be done by the end of 2024. I love if stories like this. If we get to like 2024 this. after they open this, uh, that's this, right. This seals and it, tomb. it unleashes the uh, the living dead. Right. Yeah. Did I ever tell you about the vampire grave I found in Sweden? No. I was in, no. I was in Sweden, Gotland, this island in Sweden, visiting some friends there, and we're walking around looking at all these. There are all these thousand-year-old churches that don't, like don't look nearly as as old as they are. It's very cool. Mm-hmm. And so we're walking around the little churchyard where there are all these graves, and there's one that says like it was a woman's name, so and so, born on X date, died on whatever date, and then another died on another date twenty years later, and it just said beware. And it oh was my from, God. you know, 500 years before or something. Yeah, it was wild. I got a picture of it. Uh, I'd love to see that. I will look it up for you. It was very exciting. I asked, I was, you know, one of my friends was Swedish. And I was like, what is that? What does that mean? And she said, I don't know. But that's a warning. And we all. Oh, my God. Skedaddled out of the graveyard. Yeah, oh, I love great. that. Do you want a little update on uh, defunding the police, John, while we have I a second? I do. Might yes. Well. Um, the Real News did a study of five years of police budgets in the United States. And they found... No mass defunding of the police. Weird. So they looked at 
419 American cities from 2018 to 2022 and found that, and this is their language, despite persistent claims by politicians, pundits, and police unions, there was no mass defunding of police. Police departments got the same average cut of the city budget in 2021 as they had in previous years. Uh, The cuts that did pass in a handful of cities were modest compared to the size of the overall budget. And the budget themselves tended to be about 29 percent of the total funds, which is quite a lot of money. It's a lot of to money. go to your police department. You and, know, one of the things that, that they don't mention, too, is all this surplus military hardware that the Pentagon has given out to police departments. Mm-hmm. I did an op-ed not too long ago, a year ago, maybe about Ohio State University campus police. They took delivery of a tank. Now, what in the world? Got to roll over the world's biggest Buckeye. They ended up, there was such an uproar. Seriously, they smashed the world's biggest Buckeye. There was such an uproar that they ended up giving it back to the Pentagon. But but seriously, is is nobody thinking? What is the Ohio State University campus police going to do with a tank? Yeah, bulldoze a homeless encampment, really, in the next couple of years. Yeah, I mean, and the other thing is, there's been some news going around recently uh, that I have seen about crime clearance rates in the United States. Mm. And the Marshall Project project uh, had They're recently wonderful. done some research into it. Uh, murder clearance rate was 50% in 2020. What? 50%. Rape so was 30%. So it's not like law and order where they clear every single case. No. Robbery, 27%. Assault, I think it was something like 47%. And most of these rates have been on a steady decline since 1980. What? The Marshall Project says, you know, part of this might be changes that make it harder to arrest people, but that's definitely not all of it. And just by comparison, and look, I could not do a global comparison in the time that I had this morning, but I have seen plenty of... um Discussion saying we have we have among the lowest crime clearance rates in the Western world, uh, a paper looking at crime clearance rates in the Netherlands, Finland, Sweden and Switzerland had ranges. So this is between 2009 and 2014. That clearance rate was 77 to 98 percent. So, again, for all of this budget, for all of this money, for all of this technological equipment. Is it preventing crime? No, that doesn't happen. And are they even solving crimes very oh my often? God. Don't seem to be. So again, you know, the funding is not the problem here. And yet, and again, this is from the Real News' uh, report, it said 49% of participants in a Politico morning consult poll from February 2022, so just a couple months ago, blamed defunding police or rising violent crime rates in America, and 69% believed increasing police budgets would decrease crime a lot or some. And so, you know, it's, it's not surprising that people think this because this is being sold to them constantly and often by police chiefs themselves yes. going, oh, we need some more money. We don't have any money. Right. We need some more guys. Right. But it just does not seem to be true. And the sooner we can actually think of a different way to use some of this money, and start funding some other programs to actually prevent crime and then solve solve crimes after they happens. You know, we'll we'll live in a better society. But like the the trajectory we're on now it goes nowhere good. No, no, I think you're exactly right. Well, we have a lot more coming up. We have wonderful guests. Our next one, I think, is on the phone waiting for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're live in D.C. You're listening to Political Misfits. Stay tuned. We've got a full show for you. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Russia appears to have begun its long-awaited assault on the Donbass. Both Moscow and Kiev are calling this a new phase of the war. And they're saying that the front stretches hundreds of miles through eastern Ukraine's industrial heartland. Most of Ukraine's industrial assets are concentrated in the east, including coal mines, aluminum, tin, and steel plants, and machine-building factories. Securing the region would be a major victory for President Putin, who needs a win to offset what many see as the slow pace of the war. On the Ukrainian side, President Zelensky used the Russian announcement of the offensive as an opportunity to ask the West for more weapons and weapon systems. Meanwhile, defense giant Lockheed Martin is in talks with the Pentagon to replenish whatever the Ukrainians need. Something that investors are calling a war halo has formed around U.S. defense stocks as profit guidance is increased and investors flock to purchase shares. We're joined by George Samueli. He's a columnist and senior research fellow at the Global Policy Institute. Welcome back, George. Uh, Nice to be with you, John and Michelle. So glad to have you, George. And I tell you, it's really great to speak to an expert, too, because I'm not an expert on these issues. So I'm glad that you're here to help walk us through it. Let's begin with the Donbass. This region is large. It has a large ethnic Russian population. It has long been an area that the Russian government has spoken about in terms of the reasons that it's in Ukraine in the first place. What should we expect to see in the coming days and weeks? Is this a front that will fall quickly into Russian hands or will the Russians see some resistance there? Well, I think they'll see some resistance. The problem that the uh, Ukrainian army faces, and they're very well dug in, is that um, they don't really have any maneuverability, which makes them, of course, sitting ducks for the Russians. So it's really up to the Russians how quickly they want to wrap things up. They could use overwhelming force, heavy artillery, their air power, and simply uh, slaughter the uh, Ukrainian army. They really don't want to do that. Um, they want the Ukrainians essentially to surrender and uh, and go home. Um, whether they'll do that is, uh, is a different question. But I think that, uh, you know, if the Ukrainian army has no maneuverability and there's not likely to be any kind of serious military reinforcement coming in from the West, then you know, there's only one way out for the uh, the Ukrainian army that's dug in, and that is their total destruction or surrender. Right. I read an article yesterday, George, saying that for all intents and purposes, the entire Russian army is now in Ukraine. Uh, whether that's true or not, I, I don't know. But we have this large front in the east. There's an active conflict in the south. Can the Russian army, or at least what of the Russian army is in Ukraine maintain these two fronts? What do you envision happening in the South as the army begins to fight in the East? I think that um, they're not going to do that much fighting. I think they're going to use um, uh, air power. I think they're going to use uh, heavy artillery. I think the fighting that took place was the fighting that took place in the cities. And that uh, involved um, heavy casualties. Obviously, the Russians did sustain heavy casualties. But in this case, they really don't need to uh, engage um, their manpower. I think they can just simply use their uh, firepower and and, and destroy the Ukrainians. I don't think the Russians have uh, used up most of their army. I don't believe that most of their army is in Ukraine. I think they're keeping their army back 
just in case um, NATO decides to get involved. I mean, I think that there's, there has to be a backup plan uh, for the possibility that uh, NATO uh, goes crazy and decides to get um, seriously involved in Ukraine. I, I still don't think it's likely to happen. Nonetheless, it's a serious possibility, and this is something the Russians always uh, calculate, um, I mean, particularly you know, in the light of what happened in 1941, which is to uh, keep back um, their, um, their main forces uh, for, uh, for, you know, for a counteroffensive. I'll ask you a question that I asked uh, Jim Jatris yesterday on the on the uh, show. Uh, Senator Chris Coons, the Democrat of uh, Delaware, who is known to be President Biden's best friend in the Congress, was on the Sunday morning talk shows uh, day before yesterday. And he was he was promoting the notion that now is the time for NATO to send troops. Now is the time for the United States to more to be more deeply involved. and. Much to my surprise, he didn't get a lot in the way of pushback after uh, these statements were broadcast. And and the reporters that he was talking to, you know, asked follow up questions saying, well, wait a minute, you're talking about a major uh, uh, worsening of the situation on the ground if the United States or NATO get involved uh, uh, by sending troops. But again, no pushback from policymakers or from members of, of Congress. Do you see us headed in that direction? Do you see a scenario where the United States or NATO finally ends up sending troops to Ukraine? It's definitely a possibility. Um, but then the type of say that um, Russia is likely to respond um, so um, vigorously mm -hmm. um, that uh, Americans uh, are going to get killed. Um, uh, any kind of American weaponry will be destroyed, and all kinds of uh, NATO airfields and air bases um, in Poland and the Baltic states are likely to be destroyed. Um, Russians may seize ports. Um, the consequences will be very dire, and I would imagine that at that point, um, the American public will get really angry with these uh, stupid, reckless politicians who have kind of pushed uh, their way yeah. into a, uh, a war that nobody in America wants. Um, but it's, a, you know, it, it's definitely a possibility. I mean, what, you, you might have ruled this out a couple of months ago. Uh, you can't you know, rule this out anymore. I mean, there are people talking about, uh, as Coons, uh, about sending in troops. I mean, there have been all these uh, nonsense about no-fly zones. Um, it, it, it's you know it's it's kind of an amazing thing. I mean, we've just been through two years of um, COVID, in which we were, people were terrified of catching uh, the flu in winter, but they don't seem to be terrified of uh, catching a nuclear war. Uh, it's, it's a strange uh, state of affairs that we're living in. So true, though. So true. Pre President Putin said more than a month ago that he would like to see Donetsk and Luhansk as independent Russian republics. Is is this still the Russian goal uh, in the east? And what's the goal in the south? I yeah, I, I do think that they they're going to try and uh, create uh, these uh, Donetsk and Lugansk uh, independent republics. Um, in the south, I mean, they're obviously Mariupol is um, almost fallen, so that'll be they'll take the Azov Sea, 
the, create the land bridge between um, Crimea and Russia. Um, what happens uh, in the Black Sea, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, it's, it could well be that um, Odessa will also uh, fall to the Russians, or they might just simply decide not to uh, take Odessa. Um, I think it, it really depends on to what extent um, the Ukrainians are, are willing to negotiate um, with, with the Russians. I mean, I think that if, if they're going to continue uh, jerking the Russians around, throwing around these wild accusations about chemical weapons, now that they're about to use nuclear weapons, then the Russians will just say, you know, we're just going to, we'll take the Black Sea coast, uh, and then we're going to have build a land bridge to um, Transnistria, so all, all, all the way there. Um, I, I think, I don't think that's what the Russians want to do, but they do want somebody in Kiev to um, negotiate with them. I mean, the, there seemed to be the possibility of a deal two, three weeks ago, uh, and that's just evaporated. I mean, you know, what pressure Zelensky is under, um, but, but the Russians are just, you know, they, they, don't, they don't think there's any real point in, uh, in, in just, you know, constantly having a stop, stop, go uh, with, uh, with Zelensky, because he really isn't um, the master of his house. He's under, clearly he's being run by others. And uh, and then you know so the Russians will say okay we're just going to create facts on the ground mm -hmm. um, and you know, forget forget about uh, the talking with Zelensky so so I think that that's probably what's going to happen. We talked about uh, Mariupol on the show yesterday as well and certainly it's been in the news a lot lately. Uh, the fight there seems to be a difficult one for both sides, but more so for the. Uh, for the Ukrainians, and it's expected to worsen as the Russians issue deadlines for the city to surrender. I think they've updated that deadline to today or tomorrow, something like that. Mariupol is also the base of the Azov Battalion. Is the goal there to destroy the Azov Battalion? I would assume that it is. Is the goal to occupy the city permanently as, as part of this land bridge? What should we expect to see from the Russians over the long term? Well, I, I think all of that. I, I think uh, the destruction of Azov is obviously one of the stated um, uh, war goals of Putin. I mean, P Putin talked about uh, demilitarization, denazification, and uh, the independence of the Donetsk and Lugansk. So uh, the destruction of Azov is obviously part of the uh, denazification. But of course, Mariupol is a, a strategic uh, city for the Russians. That gives them uh, complete control of the uh, Azov, and it gives them that land bridge. Um, I think the Russians are, are trying to be as humane as possible. So they're giving, um, you know, the Azov, the people who are actually stuck in that um, uh, steelworks, opportunity to surrender because they say, look, I mean, the, you've got nowhere to go. Right. Uh, no, you know, no, no arms are coming in. No reinforcements are coming. Uh, you don't have any food. You don't have any option but to surrender. But there's also you know, the 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 big option, which is they could just simply bury them alive. I mean, we assume the Azov is now very underground of that steelworks. Well, right. I mean, the Russians right. just bomb the steelworks and then, and you know, a couple of thousand people just be buried alive. I mean, it's brutal, but I don't think the Russians are really in the mood to joke around now. I think they've, they've sustained quite heavy casualties 
and uh, you know they, they just think that hey, you know, enough already. You know, right. if you're not surrendering, fine, then accept your fate, and you'll be just be buried alive. George, tell us a little bit about uh, the role of defense contractors, U.S. defense contractors in this war. It seems like it's boom times for the likes of Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, Raytheon, all the others. It seems like the Ukrainians are getting pretty much everything they want for free. Michelle and I have spoken here on the show about it's like at least once a week we're talking about supplemental appropriations uh, for the, the war in Ukraine. Oh, is that the case? Yeah, it definitely is. Um, And uh, it's not actually (laughs) making very much of a difference. So it really is just simply uh, money for hardware. Um, It it looks very much like um, the moment this hardware um, arrives um, in Ukraine, it's destroyed by the Russians. So they have a kind of a shelf life of, um, uh, you know, a couple of hours. Um, and uh, it's not it's not really doing anything very much. Um, and, uh, and it's also now seeming to be that, uh, you know, the United States is just uh, is pretty much running out of uh, stuff to uh, to send to Ukraine. There's an article in Bloomberg today that, hey, we're just running out. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. you, we've sent so much stuff in uh, so quickly that uh, you know, you know, we got we got to stop worrying about what's in our own stock. So, you know, it's it's funny, George, because that is definitely not the message of the Biden administration. You know, they were ex- explicitly congratulating themselves. I forget who it was who said it, but we we mentioned it on the show saying, you know, we are the reason our weapons are the reason that this fight has lasted, that that Ukraine has a shot. And that's why we have to keep it up. And it, you know, according to you, it doesn't seem like it's actually doing anyone any good except for the companies that are getting money for these arms and that will be getting money to replenish these stockpiles. No, that's that's right. Um, because the uh, the fate of the war is pretty much settled. I mean, we you know we know that uh, Ukraine is not capable of mounting any kind of um, counteroffensive. I mean, they can they can mount a counterattack here or there. They can mount a skirmish here or there. But in terms of the uh, the outcome of this war, I mean, that's pretty much been settled. Um, you know, we we can see that uh, the, the Ukrainian forces uh, in the West have not been able to um, help out the Azov Battalion in Mariupol. They've not been able to um, uh, help, help out the, um, uh, the uh, Ukrainian armed forces that are dug in in the East and try to uh, re- rescue them from essentially being uh, encircled by the Russian forces. So they, they don't have any real means at hand to um, to you know, mount any kind of a, an offensive against the Russians, so you know it means the war is e- extended. To what purpose? It's not clear. Um, and uh, and yeah, you're right. I mean, it's the contractors that are doing very well. But it's also interesting that you know, remember, remember, it was about a month or so ago. There was all the talk that oh, the Russians are going to run out of um, ammunition. Right. The Russians are going right. to run Food. out of. Um, uh, um, hardware, right. that's gone. You know, it's very much now the other way. Hey, we're we're the ones who are now starting to run out of ammunition. I mean, you, you know, you, you know, it's not just the United States, but throughout, you know, NATO, they're saying, hey, we just don't have the equipment to send to Ukraine. I mean, you know, we, you know, it's uh, you know, I mean, basically, I mean, all the NATO they haven't really been spending all that much uh, all this time uh, on on their military. It was just like they thought NATO membership is just a kind of a 
uh, the kid in the candy store. They just give you this, hey, here's your guarantee, you're safe, uh, and that's it. But now they're finding that, you know, they they don't really have, a, you know, they they've got the will to fight on behalf of uh, Ukraine, but they don't have the means to do so. Yeah. Yeah. George, wars typically uh, do not end in total victory for one side or the other. The Ukrainians have said that they would fight the Russians to the last man, but they won't really. I mean, nobody ever does. How do you see this thing ending? The Russians have said that they want Donetsk and Luhansk to be independent Russian republics. They want to keep Crimea as part of Russia. Can you see that being the case in the end? And can you see it being acceptable to the Ukrainians? Could that eventually be the basis of uh, some sort of a peace agreement? Well, that's a, that's a very good question. I think that um, the Russians are working on the assumption that once the, um, the, uh, the armies in the east, the Ukrainian armies in the east are destroyed, then uh, there'll be some rational thought given in Kiev that that's it. We, we just don't have any means any longer to go on fighting. And then they'll come to some kind of an agreement. I'm not at all sure that that's the case. I think that um, uh, the Russians will just simply create facts on the ground. Um, they will just, you know, have, you know, like Donetsk and uh, Lugansk, they'll be independent. It's not unlike what the Russians have done in Syria. I mean, after all, you know, there's no peace agreement in Syria. Right. Um, right. They're just, you know, some areas are now under government control. Some areas are not under government control. Uh, some areas are now permanently not under government control. Um, but then you just say, okay, well, uh, you know, the, we, these are the facts on the ground. There's no, there's not going to be any kind of a peace conference. There's not going to be any kind of peace negotiations between all the parties. We just have to work with what we've, uh, what we've got. And I think that may well be what happens um, with, um, uh, with Ukraine. Now, There'll be a rump Ukraine. There'll be you know the, the Western part, the Galician part. That'll be a uh, you know that, that's going to be NATO's prize. Not much of a prize if they don't have um, access to the uh, Black Sea and right. the Azov, which is now gone. I mean, back in 2014, when they when they dreamt of this prize of Ukraine, they they were planning on the Black Sea, Azov, and Crimea. None of that um, is now available uh, for NATO. Um, but I think that. There might be worse kind of consequences because I suspect that one thing that will happen will be a complete diplomatic break between uh, Russia and the West. And I think that's very dangerous. I mean, otherwise, we just simply break off all diplomatic relations. And I think we're heading towards that now, um, breaking off all cultural relations, um, you know, all economic, financial, trade relations. And I think then we're kind of really into a, a very dangerous world. So I think. Ukraine, yeah, you know that there'll be some sort of a, a settlement there. You know, Russians will take what uh, what they can, but then I think we're into a very a, a very dangerous, uncertain world, much more dangerous than at any time uh, during the Cold War. Wow, that's that's a bold uh, prediction. You know, looking back historically too, even at at the most difficult uh, moments of the Cold War. Uh, we were careful to always maintain diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union, not just the United States, but all the all the Western countries. It would be such a terrible thing, in my view, to uh, to break diplomatic relations. But then if you look at yesterday's uh, issue of Politico, that's exactly what they were saying. They were, they were even kind of promoting it. 
you know, that the Russian ambassador is the, the loneliest man in Washington. Nobody will take his calls. Nobody wants to have lunch with him. I mean, where does it go from there? Maybe it goes to breaking relations. Yeah, no, I, I think it's, it's we're heading towards that because now every single day, um, you know, there's, there's one or other uh, NATO uh, country expels yet more diplomats. And you have to think there can't really be very many diplomats no. left. No. Uh, and then, of course, Agreed. there's tit for tat. The Russians then reciprocate and expel those diplomats. So you have to think that, you know, once uh, you, there's a point at which you, know, you can't expel any more diplomats, you just simply break off all uh, diplomatic uh, relations. Um, and I, I think that that's where it's heading. And you're absolutely right. That's what, uh, in the, during the Cold War, the worst times, um, there was indeed uh, diplomatic relations. Uh, there was the hotline that was set up by Kennedy and Khrushchev. Um, and, you know, there were still all, all, all kinds of um, ties at the highest levels. Um, but, you know, there was also... You know, sporting events. The you know, Soviet Union was never kicked out of any sporting events. Right. Um, right. You know, even after uh, Czechoslovakia, Czechoslovakia in '68, and the Mexico Olympics took place in '68, Soviet Union took part in the Mexico Olympics. I mean, same thing. You know, after Hungary, there, there were the Melbourne Olympics. Again, Soviet Union took part in the Melbourne Olympics. No one ever went that far of just eliminating uh, the Soviet Union from sport, sporting and cultural events. I mean, you know, there were cultural events all the time. You know. The Bolshoi ballet uh, would, would would be a regular thing everywhere. Um, uh, you know, exhibitions. You know, uh, Soviet artists would be exhibited. So, but this is so drastic. The the, the this rift now that you know, I think the West is the one that's pushing it, not the Russians. That they really want to just simply break off all ties uh, with Russian civilization. Then you know, it it really is. You know, I, I, I think it's very, very alarming where that's going to end up. So, you know, you have, all, yes, we've got all these um, uh, these idiot senators, you know, talking about war. Even if they don't get the war now, that war could come, you know, next year or the year after. I mean, it's, it's, it's that, that dire, this rift between uh, West and Russia. George, one last question. I have to ask you about Odessa. I have some friends who are Ukrainian and they're panicked at the thought of Odessa falling to the Russians. What do you expect to become of Odessa? The Ukrainians insist that they have to have access to the sea. What happens down there? Well, that's, that's a very good question. And, it, and it's very difficult um, to predict because Russia has never really spelled out um, his war aims. I mean, I think it's, I think the Russians, you know, they, the way they look upon the war is that somehow the war aims uh, alter as the uh, war progresses. And I think, uh, given the extent of their uh, casualties, I think that they are not in the mood to make too many concessions. So, and particularly Odessa, because that that fire in 2014, mm -hmm. when so many people were killed, and as Putin pointed this out, this was done deliberately. Uh, you know, that the, the, these people were, you know, murdered. Uh, it was a, the fire was, you know, that they were led into that uh, trade union building and they were deliberately, the fire was set. And that the government knows who the perpetrators were and have not done anything about those perpetrators. So that's a sore point with Russia. And I think that's why I think that, um, that they want to take Odessa. 
Mm-hmm. Now, um, you know, they might change their view. I think if if um, Zelensky were more serious now about negotiations, but the longer Zelensky is kind of jerking them around and talking this nonsense about nuclear weapons, then the less uh, likely are the Russians to make any sort of concessions on Odessa. So I think they they probably will take Odessa. Okay, we'll leave it there. That was the voice of George Samueli. He's a columnist and senior research fellow at the Global Policy Institute. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a brief break and we'll come right back. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, continuing uh, sort of an ongoing discussion about where the rest of the world is when it comes to this supposedly uh, global coalition against Russia, and in particular, talking about the, the ongoing role of India. India has been discussed a lot this past month after it received a bunch of visitors from the U.S., from Europe, from Russia. And I wanted to talk about what the domestic conversation is right now regarding the conflict in Ukraine, regarding outside efforts to you know, push India to modify its political and economic relationships in different ways and what the political and economic implications are for India right now. And so we are joined by journalist Ankita Mukpatyay. She's a journalist who frequently covers politics in South Asia with a specific focus on India. Ankita, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So, um, you know, there was some talk about India being a little bit reluctant to just upend its economic relationship with Russia. Uh, to follow, you know, to, in accordance with the United States' wishes. And, and a lot of the reluctance to join the condemnation and sanctions uh, is attributed to economic self-interest and, and interest in energy uh, purchases as well, which, you know, assuredly is a factor. But India has also been a non-aligned country for a long time. And so I wanted to talk about, in addition to, you know, economic self-interest, what the political motivations might be that would compel India to resist following marching orders from, you know, either Russia or the United States? Yeah, I think to understand India, we need to get a bit of a historical perspective here. Since the 1950s, India, along with then Yugoslavia and Egypt, was part of the non-aligned movement. And since then, particularly uh, before the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, India had actually had a lot of industry that was built by um, now Russia. So a lot of the people who got jobs in India, a lot of the industries, like basic, like, like uh, steel industries were built by the Russians. So we have a long-standing relationship with Russia. The other factor to this is that India has been increasingly dependent on defense imports from Russia. We have a lot of um, missiles that we get from Russia. We inked a deal in December too. So um, the biggest concern for India right now is protecting its border with China and Russia has been helping India do that. For now, right now, India's concern is economic, but it's also related to defense. Russia is a big ally of India. And if Russia starts veering towards China when it's isolated, it's dangerous for India too. So that's one of the concerns. And another is obviously oil imports. India is getting cheap oil now from Russia. 
and um but i also feel that what what people don't understand is that india has even though it allies it's seen as an ally of the us it's seen as an ally of russia it's seen as like a, a neutral country at the end of the day india is very uh, is very scared of everything that india does is because it's scared of what what repercussions it will have with pakistan and china because that is india's biggest concern because at the end of the day protecting our borders and security is india's biggest um, biggest concern do you think that uh, russia and china's increasingly close relationship could affect India's relationship with China? Because as you say, if India is, de- you know, dependent on Russia for a lot of its defense industry. And I remember, I think Modi, didn't he start a big push a couple years ago to um, to uh, spur domestic development of, of arms? I was going to ask you how that is going. But uh, could that help warm things between India and China? Or is that going to be a totally separate matter, regardless of what Russia and China's relationship is? Um, India and China's relationship will not warm up anytime in the future because it's it's been quite bad for a while now. Mm-hmm. Like uh, in uh, in Ladakh, like a lot of territory has been taken over by China, although India claims otherwise. But it's it's a known fact within India that China has taken over a certain part of a territory. After which India banned TikTok and a lot of other Chinese apps. So we have a very difficult relationship right now with China. Another issue is obviously Tibet. We have a lot of Tibetans living in India. We have the Dalai Lama. So India is not going to be changing its stand on Tibet anytime soon. So when it comes to human rights violations, um, um, it's just it's just one thing on which India won't budge. Like the Tibet issue is India, India won't budge on that. So that's going to be a thorn on the side of the India-China relations. Another th- issue is that... Um, the northeast side of india is seeing a lot of uh, military intervention from china like there is a lot of um, animosity there is a lot of uh, there's there are claims within the indian military that uh, th- there are some insurgents who are going and taking getting training in china so and they're coming and they're you know causing trouble in india so this is the kind of conversations that that are happening mm-hmm. so it's anyway india sees china as a as a very as a larger competitor and as a country that can go to war with india because it's aligned with pakistan so that's always the ally i think the biggest concern for india is the fact that china is also taking over um, also being very friendly with a lot of its neighbors like it's isolated india pretty much in its neighborhood like nepal is now getting closer to china mm-hmm. sri lanka was anyway closer to china mm-hmm. pakistan is also close to china so i think india is pretty much isolated right now yeah and also you know russia is closer to china and they india has a long standing relationship with russia as you've been saying so that is sort of a does point to a, a pattern of uh, you know slowly isolating india the other economic question I wanted to ask you is I know uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi told Joe Biden last week that India was ready to feed the world if called upon. Uh, and he was referencing, of course, his predicted shortfalls of grain because of the conflict in Ukraine, uh, because of Ukraine and both Ukraine and Russia not being able to export the, the amounts that they usually do. How realistic is it that India could open its stocks and become a bigger exporter, particularly of grains? And and what would that do to the Indian economy and the Indian people? Uh, I think it's very realistic that India can do it. But I think uh, uh, Prime Minister Modi is overestimating because a lot of, uh, although we do export a lot of grain and rice, uh, it is dependent heavily on seasonal rainfall, uh, on uh, the summer heat and uh, rainfall, as as most Indians know, is not, it's erratic. Uh, there have been a lot of incidents of drought. A lot of farmers have committed suicide over the last decades. So 
for uh, for India, the biggest problem is that even though we can make these tall claims and say we can feed the rest of the world, if we actually start exporting grains and we we overreach ourselves, there's a high probability that we won't have um, food at home. So, uh, and we have had state governments fall over the prices of onions in the past. So, I wouldn't. I would say that we should take that with a pinch of salt because at the end of the day, we don't know. Over the next few weeks, we'll know what is India's harvest. Till we know that, I don't think we there should be any um, like any claims like this because we don't know what what might happen. I also want to ask how concerned India should be about economic crises among its neighbors, because there's been some reporting on, you know, with central banks raising interest rates that countries that carry uh, debt loads are going to start facing serious crises. You have Sri Lanka already saying, uh, you know, we we can't pay our our foreign debts right now. You have Pakistan potentially heading toward a, a debt crisis. India, you know, is not in that cohort, but it is in that neighborhood. And I wonder, you know, if, if India is looking at its own stability and thinking about how much it rests on the, you know, the stability of its region. India is also facing inflation right now. Uh, today morning uh, uh, in the U.S., Kaushik Basu, uh, who is an economist, he tweeted that India's wholesale price inflation has r- risen to f- uh, 14.55% in March. And this is not a one-time spike. Mm-hmm. Since March 2021, wholesale price inflation each month has been in double digits. So India has also been facing a big issue with inflation. It's it's hurting the people in the country. And I think if our neighbors continue to face these debt crises, even though India is helping um, Sri Lanka, it's it's sending uh, sending exports. It's still um, it still won't be enough to uh, anyway help our neighbors. And once our neighbors face an economic collapse, they will be looking at bigger countries like China to bail them out. Mm-hmm. And once they ba- once they look at China for a bailout, it's going to make life, India's life even tougher. So I think um, right now the biggest concern for in India should be to build up its economy, but with with the current political situation in India and India's focus on its social problems with Muslims, uh, I don't think uh, the economy is going to be um, on the horizon anytime soon. And as long as we have social issues in India, we we continue to um, mistreat our Muslims. We will continue having problems with uh, our neighbors like Bangladesh and Pakistan. I think it's interesting that you say, you know, if if India's neighbors start to struggle economically, they will be looking to China uh, because, you know, I mean, the United States likes to present itself as a great uh, sister, you know, aid to the developing world. There are the institutions like the World Bank and the IMF. I mean, I, of course, think there are a lot of reasons not necessarily to, you know, that uh, aid packages from those entities come with strings attached. But I, I wonder if you could elaborate on that. Is is the idea now, if you are a developing country, if you need a sort of cash um, injection or if you need help through a crisis, the country to look to is China and not these institutions like the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank? I think that that's not completely true, but then there are caveats, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you look at... Like if you now it's like a it's like a dual it's like a choice. Mm-hmm. So if you take help from China, then there, there's obviously a lot of uh, uh, things that come with it. Like you like in Nepal, like there's uh, Chinese is being taught in certain schools. Uh, there's a focus on um, like aligning with China in every way possible, becoming like a micro unit of China outside China. So that's that's one of the things. But with the U.S. too, the U.S. also has its issues. Like. Uh, if if a country allies with the U.S., there is a, always a possibility that if the government is not of uh, 
the U.S. is liking, the U.S. can um, like force a political coup within that country. And U.S. has a reputation for doing that. And there is a lot of anim general animosity in the Indian government, like not an animosity. I would rather say that there is like a concern with aligning too much with the U.S. because the U.S. is not seen as a fair weather ally. It's seen more as a as an ally that that can lean towards anyone depending on where its interests lie. Uh, the U.S. was uh, giving um, was giving uh, missiles to Pakistan. So India, for India, that is obviously a very, very big concern. So it's not that they're looking at China. It's just that they don't have much of an option. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I think I think that is rings very true and is very interesting and sort of, you know, I, I there was a quote from former U.S. diplomat John Feely in this Wall Street Journal article that acknowledged, look, you know, the developing world is really missing from this this global block against Russia. And he was saying, um, you know, one of the consequences is that the Biden administration is going to recognize that our, our real buddies, our real fellow travelers are in Europe and northern Asia, and it will be to the detriment of Africa and Latin America and India, uh, you know, where there was an opportunity to work with the United States. But if you don't toe the line on, you know, the, the Russia-Ukraine war, you're going to miss out on this opportunity. And I wanted to get to me, that sounds like a pretty condescending position to take to suggest that, oh, if only you would, you know, work with us on this one issue, then we, you know, there are great possibilities for our partnership as though the United States has not been, you know, in partnership in some way or another with these countries for years and years. You know, if if prosperity was just around the corner, if you would only open your heart to the U.S., uh, there would be a lot more prosperity in the world, I think. Yeah, I, I I honestly feel that that that's a statement that we would we would as Indians we would expect uh, from the U.S. because we've had a lot of arguments in the past with the U.S. over certain things like, uh, for example, over terror financing, over um, terror attacks in India. Uh, the U.S. has not really been like an ally for us um, in certain situations. So it's not that the anim there is a reason for why the why there's like a mistrust towards the US. While India has condemned this horrible, horrible war against Ukraine, India at the end of the day is not taking a stand along with the other nations. Like Indonesia has not taken a stand, South Africa has not taken a stand against Russia. You have to also see that how it plays out in the UN. In the UN, it's viewed, at least in India, it's viewed as as some as an institution controlled by the United States. Now if China and Russia have veto powers. India does not have any veto power. Indonesia, South Africa don't have any veto powers. And the, and the veto power is the most important thing in the United States. And unfortunately, if Russia has it, then there, then there will be certain countries not willing to speak up um, or condemn anything against Russia because at the end of the day, they have to see their interests and they are smaller countries in the world. They, have, uh, they don't have the economic power that the United States has. And they always have the concern of their governments being deposed by the United States or like there being a political coup. So uh, all these leaders, especially leaders like Modi, who are who are very power hungry, who want to stay in power, they would not want to ally with either country because at the end of the day, uh, uh, like even uh, you never know, like if today India allies with the US, tomorrow if we go to war with Pakistan and China um, is supporting Pakistan, um, the the, the concern in India largely is that we are not sure if the United States will come and support us. So I think the, the feeling of going to war is driving um, a lot of these uh, issues. Mm -hmm. And Keita, we've only got a, about a minute left. I wanted to ask you very quickly about this uh, COVID, India's COVID death toll. 
The WHO concluded that it's about 4 million. The Indian government's tally is about 520,000. The Indian government is is questioning the WHO's methodology. Uh, Is there more to it than this? And, And which tally do you think is closer to the truth? I agree with the WHO's tally. I think the Indian government is lying. And I know this because my father-in-law died from COVID. Mm. And I remember very clearly that day when he died, the way that the funeral happened, um, it was very evident that a lot of the data was being smudged, fudged. And uh, a lot of the people who were dying from COVID, that deaths were unaccounted for because there were ambulances with dead bodies. And there were there have been so many deaths, like every Every person I knew had a death in their family. So it is not possible that we had only 520,000 deaths. That's uh, that's a, that's just, uh, it does not honor the people. It's it's just a very sad thing for the people like me who lost a family member. And it's um, a lot of the data fudging, and I've been saying this repeatedly over the last one year, is because there was the institutions collectively failed. A lot of people died at home because they didn't get medicines. A lot of people died at home because they didn't get oxygen. So their deaths were not accounted for in the tally. The COVID-19 death toll was only tallied on the basis of the death certificates that came from hospitals. So my father-in-law's death was counted because it was declared a COVID-19 death. But there have been a lot of deaths. I have myself seen on uh, on ground when governing that a lot of deaths did were not accounted for in the death certificates. Ankita, so the government is, I'm going to have to cut uh, you like, off there, but I appreciate you trying to answer that question in such a short time. That was journalist Ankita Mukpatyay. Thank you so much for joining us. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, starting our second hour here. And we are going to talk a lot about immigration Yep. because, hey, John, you know, you keep talking about Chris Coons, uh, Delaware yeah. Senator Chris Coons, who was formerly, I guess, Joe Biden's best friend in the Senate. But uh, he's been coming <laughs> for the president over the past couple of days. I, I did want to interrupt your conversation earlier, but, um, you know, yeah, he's he's calling for American soldiers to be sent to Ukraine. He's also among the most vocal critics now uh, among Democrats of Joe Biden's plan to end the Title 42 public health protocols that have been, uh, you know, allowing the United States to just reject asylum seekers at its southern border. Right. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how much this friendship is going to be serving Joe Biden. Well, I wonder if I wonder if Coons is doing this on behalf of the administration just to to, you know, throw throw a grenade into the middle of the room and then see what the public reaction would maybe. be to then allow the White House to respond. Yeah, maybe. I, I wonder. Yeah, I don't know. Because these seem to me to be very unpopular or ahead of the trend uh, positions for him to take. And, and this is really not in keeping with his personality. When I was working on the Hill, Coons was one of these guys, never missed a committee hearing, worked quietly, worked hard. Kept a low profile. Now he's out there, you know, raising Cain. And it's really not like him. Yeah, there is always the possibility that uh, the Democrats actually want spoilers to avoid doing some things that they've promised they were going to do. Also, a little aside, uh, there was an analysis released yesterday to mark tax day in the U.S. How much do you think 
the United States' 735 billionaires have seen their collective wealth grow in just the past two years. By, oh. give, a, give a percent to me. If, if Elon Musk is indicative, uh, I'm going to say in the last two years, you mm-hmm. said, mm-hmm. at least 20%. 62. Oh, my God. 62%. This is a study by Oxfam America. Uh, Yeah, over the past years, worker earnings have grown just 10%. And of course, a lot of that is being eaten up by inflation Inflation. and and housing costs, which I don't even know. I don't even know if they're included in the costs, you know, when they calculate inflation. Lease is coming due, and I always just, you know, sign on for another two years. And I'm actually worried this year Mm -hmm. at how bad the damage is going to be. I'm worried about it because housing prices all around me are skyrocketing. Yeah. And then couple that with inflation. I know. I feel uh, I have a, I don't know if I want to talk too much about my personal housing situation, but (laughs) I don't think, knock on wood, I do not think I have to worry about that. I don't think I have a, you know, landlord who's very interested in making money in particular off this property. But if I did, yeah. If your rent just goes up 40% or something, what are yeah. you supposed to do? It's, uh, it's, uh, it's yeah, yeah, horrible. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, U.S. billionaires, according to the study, now own a combined $4.7 trillion in wealth, much of which goes completely untaxed. Oh, sure. Pretty, sure it does. pretty grim. Yep. That's awful. That's why so many of them base their businesses in places like Bermuda or Ireland or the Caymans. You know, you create your paper company in a place like that and you pay little or no taxes, even if it's a U.S. focused business. I guess when you have that kind of money, you know, you can do that. Yeah. Also, speaking of that kind of money and Elon Musk, have you seen the latest about a a, a different effort to take over Twitter? Yes. What is it? Apollo. Let me look this up. Apollo Wealth Management. Are they part of the group that wants to take it over? They're part of the uh-huh. group. Yeah. And I saw a brief interview with Prince Al-Walid bin Talal mm-hmm. al-Saud um, saying that so long as he's a Twitter owner, Elon Musk is not taking over the company. I had no so idea. Is there some personal beef between them? Because why I, would he I care? Guess. Now you have this. This is a private equity firm, Apollo Global Management, right. uh, saying maybe they're going to get involved. This is a report. I don't think it is coming directly from them. Um, but yeah, the Wall Street Journal has been reporting it. It's very funny to me now that we are. It's 100% because this is Elon Musk yeah, that anyone all. cares if or knows Joe Blow, who, who owns Twitter. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. An interesting thing, too, to me in this whole kerfuffle is that Twitter is not a particularly attractive company mm-hmm. to be the target of a, of a takeover. Mm-hmm. It's, it's revenues are tenuous. Uh, it is seen as having underperformed over the last decade. Uh, they're not really sure if it has long-term viability. It's, it's got increasingly tough competitors. I am Donald Trump's social media <laughs> network, of course. It doesn't have increasing. Tough competitor, I guess TikTok, and then whatever yeah. is the next TikTok. Yeah, TikTok. Yeah, and it, all the right, all the right wing uh, people are are moving to to Rumble and to Parler. Mm-hmm. So who knows? Are they? Because there is also this school of thought that, like, what is the point of just? I mean, yes, we all exist in some de- to some degree in an echo chamber, but also, what's the fun if you can't look at other people's terrible opinions and then talk. Right. You know what I mean? If you're just and surrounded by them. opinions you think are good all the time, it's boring. Why yeah. even get on there? True. The whole point of getting on there is to see, you know, what 
whatever nonsense Keith Olbermann is saying today right. or, you know, just, right. just check out Malcolm Nance. Olbermann is another one of my enemies, by the way. We oh, can talk what? about that at some. Oh, yeah, I would like to hear you. He called me the worst person in the world one time. The worst person in the world. Yeah. You mean, remember how he used to do that? Worse, worser and worst person in the world. He would do it every week. No, but. Oh, th- this was his his shtick mm-hmm. at, at MSNBC. He would take somebody who made him mad that week and call him the worse person, mm-hmm. which isn't grammatically correct, then the worser person, yeah, and then upset. the worst person in the world. And he said one week it was me. Who did he beat? Do you remember? Oh, I don't, I don't remember. And I have a friend who plays poker with him every week. And he emailed us both and he said, guys, he said, Keith, you're wrong about John. He's a good guy. Let's get together, the three of us. And I said, all right, fine. I'm happy to get together, shake the man's hand. And he said, well, if we get together, it has to be at my house. I'm not coming to D.C. It has to be in uh, in New York. I said, fine. No problem. Yeah. So we made arrangements, my friend and I, to go up to New York. And then just before we went, his dad got sick and then his dad died over the weekend. So we had to postpone. I sent him a nice email saying, I'm so sorry to hear about your dad. I lost my dad too. It's never easy. You have my condolences. And then my friend sort of reset up the meeting for us to shake hands and put our differences behind us. And then just before we get in the car to drive to New York, he says, I changed my mind. F you, he says. And I said, F you, Olbermann. Is this? this is so, wow, this is, uh, yeah. <laughs> And that's, that's how we left it. I haven't spoken to him in 14 years. Well, I'm never going to speak to him now, just for you. <laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit about immigration because it is shaping up to potentially play a big role in the Democrats' midterm yes. um, prospects, yes, right? Indeed. And Joe Biden's reelection prospects. And the Wall Street Journal today was reporting. That according to U.S. Customs and Border Protection, the U.S. has made more than a million arrests at its southern border since October, which represents the fastest pace of illegal border crossings in at least the last two decades. Border agents made more than 200,000 arrests along the border in March. That was the busiest month in 20 years. So. Uh, About 11,000 migrants were allowed to enter the United States to seek humanitarian protection at land border crossings, according to their data. There was, unsurprisingly, a sharp rise in migrants from the Ukraine. Yeah. But also from Cuba. What? Yes. Cuba. Which is, uh, you know, a bit of a surprise to me. Yeah. Do do we treat Cubans as political refugees still or do we now treat them as economic refugees? Do you know? I have no idea. I, I mean, I imagine, you know, political refugees would be. But yes, there were uh, 32,000 Cubans. 32,000 Cubans crossed illegally Cubans. at the border in March alone. You've Almost as high as the me. total number of Cubans who crossed at all last year. So either, you know, Cuba has had some internal turmoil uh, recently, you know, some genuine and some, you know, with a quite a big external assist. And yeah. so uh, that could be part of it that could be something on going on here that i absolutely don't know about um when we when we say that there were a million arrests at the border half of those million migrants were immediately expelled under title 42 which is that public health emergency statute that allows the u.s to expel even asylum seekers on public health grounds right um it, it is also interesting that title 42 can actually generate more crossings 
because people get expelled, you know, you get immediately sent back to Mexico and then maybe and then you just try again a week later back, right? and then you try again another week yep. later. The other half, some of those are detained. Some of those are granted asylum. Some of, some of those are sent to, to some of those are deported. Right. So right. you're not talking about then half a million people who are accepted. You're talking right. about half a million people who go into some other aspect of the system and a big cohort of them are also going to still be deported. May I ask you one quick question? I know sure. we have a, a guest uh, waiting, but I, mm-hmm. out of curiosity, you mentioned something earlier in the show about how many um, Ukrainians are crossing the border in the South. Mm-hmm. That makes zero sense to me. Mm-hmm. Why do you think Ukrainians aren't just getting on a plane and arriving at Kennedy Airport or at Dulles Airport? Why in the world would they be making their way to Mexico and then trying to cross the border from the South when they know that we're going to accept them? It just seems like this is really the hard way of of doing it. I do not have any idea unless they are coming from South America. Uh, We are joined Uh. now by Maru Mora Bialpando, who is an immigrant rights activist. Uh, We will see if she can offer any insight on these and other questions. Maru, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for the invitation. So, you know, I I wanted to ask uh, about Title 42 in a second, but I wanted to ask you what, what you know, perhaps, of our treatment of Ukrainian refugees at the border and what that says about our border policy. And I want to read you a little bit from this AP report from earlier this month. AP said the U.S. has sped up processing for Ukrainian refugees, and it noted that there is a a loose volunteer coalition largely organized by churches. They're guiding hundreds of refugees daily from the Tijuana airport to temporary shelters where they wait two to four days for U.S. officials to admit them on humanitarian parole. In less than two weeks, volunteers worked with U.S. and Mexican officials to build a remarkably efficient and expanding network to provide food, security, transportation, and shelter. And I want to say, I do not begrudge any asylum seeker the hospitality they receive, right? Or or begrudge them a quick and easy process of, of admission. But I wonder if this is the same process that other asylum seekers encounter at the Honduras, border. Honduras, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely not. I mean, I think it's been clear for, for uh, years now how the immigration system in the United States is, uh, is based on racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see again and again... Um, it just the recent images of, of the Border Patrol uh, allowing um, their their uh, agents to whip people at the border because they were black. Mm-hmm. Um, so, no, definitely. I mean, what it shows is that the immigration system has the capacity to allow people to come in, mm-hmm. come in faster. You know, they mm-hmm. have a process for it. They just choose who they want to allow in and which process they will be facing. Let me tell you, we are working with uh, Ukrainians detained at the detention center in Tacoma. They've been detained there for years. When they heard of the opening for refugees, Ukrainians, they, they assumed they would be allowed um, to continue the, their deportation process outside with their families. Mm-hmm. But because they have a criminal record, um, it's a good excuse for ICE to keep them in detention. Mm-hmm. So it is racist, but it's also a, a way to criminalize people for their, based on their past history. But I think it's, it's very clear that, one, it is a racist system, and second, the U.S. has the capability to accelerate the processes of anybody that either comes and asks for asylum or that is put on, on deportation proceedings. They just choose 
uh, to make it more difficult for, for the vast majority of immigrants that happen to be people of color. Yeah. And I want to talk to you in a minute about what, what plans, if any, the Biden administration is putting in place to, to uh, manage a predicted inflow of immigrants after Title 42 expires. But I want to talk about Title 42 itself, first of all, and the way that it's being discussed. Title 42 is going to expire next month if if nothing changes. And the Biden administration so far has said, yes, it's 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 period of utility is over. But The Hill today is reporting that Democrats in difficult reelection races are pressuring the White House to change its mind. Uh, the way The Hill put it is that Democrats on Capitol Hill fearing a deluge of migrants at the southern border this summer are pressing Biden to back off his decision. And I just want to say one Fearing a deluge of migrants is such a nasty way uh-huh. of describing the possibility of an increase in immigration and asylum applicants. We it's like even in our language that we talk about immigration with, it is described as an unfortunate burden rather than an, a total necessity for our economy. You know, not to mention any other of the ethical and moral questions. But so also, Maru, you have Democrats like Chris Coons in the Senate who are with a straight face, uh, he was doing the rounds on the Sunday talk shows, with a straight face trying to pretend that we have to restrict migration to keep COVID under control. We just dropped mask mandates on airplanes, uh, all public transportation. We're not even funding testing anymore in lots of places. There's n- funding is just drying up for vaccines. But somehow we have to we have to worry about migrants bringing COVID. I mean, I don't know if anybody else is old enough to know the phrase bringing coal to Newcastle. But like it is so it is so on its face ridiculous. And I wanted to ask you about, you know, these these people being allowed to pretend that really they care about public health with this statute. Well, Title 42 was from the beginning nothing but excuse to stop uh, people from uh, having their international human right of asking for asylum at the border, not only this border, but any other border. This Again, this is a, a human rights um, angle that uh, the U.S. decided to skip, as they have with many, many other international rights uh, treaties that, that they're supposed to be following. Um, second, yes, it has nothing to do with COVID, right? And this wouldn't be the first time that Democrats have asked their own their own uh, president to stop something about uh, immigration that is a benefit to immigrants. Let's, let's remember uh, November 2014 when uh, Biden, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, Obama was supposed to uh, be working on an executive order on expanding the Fair Action for Childhood Arrivals, DACA. Mm-hmm. Supposed to work on that right since since the beginning of 2014. Yet it was the Democrats, the Democrats that told him, "Wait, wait for midterms. Let's 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 get back the House and the Senate, mm-hmm. and then you do the executive order." He waited after the, the elections, and guess what? They didn't recover neither the House nor the Senate. Mm-hmm. And they this is what both Democrats and Republicans do. They play football with our lives. And they, you know, it has worked every time. It's, it's, a, it's such a great charm for them. Just blame immigrants for everything that is a problem. And, and somehow uh, a lot of constituents of these people believe it and it works. Yeah, it is so shameful. One of the Democrats, by the way, who is, uh, you know, talking about immigration, who went down to visit the border, is uh, a woman from New Hampshire. And again, you know, I think state stereotypes can be overblown and that, you know, not entire. But really, New, New Hampshire, you are you're worried about a bunch of people coming up from the southern border. Give me a break. I do want to ask 
uh, about some other concerns, right? I think the concerns about COVID are obviously idiotic. But the other concerns being raised are whether the Biden administration has a plan to deal with a potential surge in migrants. And Mario, I'm not sure if you heard the beginning of our discussion where we were saying, you know, the, the number of arrests at the border uh, in the last, I think it was October to March, was a million people. It's the highest in 20 years. I mean, however you feel about it, there are a lot of people who are going to be attempting to migrate to the United States. And I don't know that it is clear that the Biden administration has put into place the, the protocols, the, the staff uh, to, to deal with this wave. And so I wanted to ask from what you can see, is the administration prepared to humanely house migrants that may be trying to arrive after Title 42 expires and to process and adjudicate their applications? Well, we know that the Biden administration claimed uh, from the beginning to uh, shut down some detention centers. One of their first executive orders was to uh, phase out, as Obama tried before, uh, private uh, federal prisons. Uh, and and not, none of that has really happened. As a matter of fact, detention centers that end uh, their contracts or they expire or, or, you know, a lot of our fights at the grassroots level work to shut down detention centers. They're being repurposed for even more, more immigrants. And so we, we think that, for one, they will continue detaining people. And again, there's no need for detention. Let's remember that this is civil, a civil proceeding. Where, where in, in earth this idea of having to create detention centers and, and treat people that are asking for a civil proceeding to be in prison? Well, it, you know, it came precisely for, for the push of uh, big corporations, such as Geo Group. Um, that are making tons and tons of uh, billions of dollars every year. But we also know that um, the Biden administration is the one that has expanded the electronic surveillance of immigrants. That is also detention. It just happened to be through another kind of enterprise, this technology, through facial recognition, voice recognition, uh, you know, through apps, ankle bracelets. So really the detention of immigrants is not going to stop. It's not going to be reduced being repurposed or it's being changed. The form is being changed. But at the end of the day, the Biden administration continues detaining immigrants because it's a big business for corporations. Sure is. Yeah, I mean, it does, that does seem to be, you know, if you're looking for an answer to any uh, situation that seems cruel or just sort of farcical, what do you find? Oh, it's making somebody who already has a lot of money a lot more money. That's right. You know, what we should really fear here is the day that immigrants stop coming yes. to the United States. Yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. I it's, would fear that day. Yeah. For a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wanted to ask also, Mara, before we move on to uh, to ICE, I just wanted to ask if you if you have any idea why um, we are getting such an increase in immigrants from Cuba. Uh, there were nearly as many Cubans trying to enter the United States in March uh, as there were in the entire fiscal year last year. Do you have any idea what might be driving that? Well, we heard from even Cubans themselves that that we have worked with in detention. There's always this image of, um, you know, Cubans Cubans here in the U.S. Uh, tend to create this image of the perfect country, the freedom that they don't have in their countries. And then when they arrive, they're faced with prisons, right? And they say, well, they lied to us. They told us this, this was the land of the freedom. But I think that also the idea of um, having changes in certain policies of, uh, on, on a supposed-to-be, quote-unquote, friendly administration, which happens to be a democratic administration— tends to make people believe 
that there will be a chance for them to not only enter the country but stay in the country long term. And that's how the the business of uh, transporting immigrants uh, has gotten to what it is, which is a huge business as well. You know, we have seen again and again cases of Border Patrol agents that um, were working for cartels or themselves are asking for money to let people in. So there's always these, these waves that are, are pushed, one, because of the politics, the international politics of the U.S. that create, the first, in the first place, the conditions for people to be forced to migrate. But second, there's this image of, oh, this is a perfect country, you will make tons of money, you will be a millionaire, and third, well, we have now a, a better administration, you will be allowed in and possibly to stay long term. So that's why you'll see in certain periods of time specific uh, nationalities that, that uh, tend to be bigger uh, migrants, number of migrants coming into the country because there's all these rumors and this push to have more migrants coming because it's a great business. People pay to get here to the United States. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to talk to you now about ICE and ICE's interaction with local uh, police. There's an article in the L.A. Progressive saying that rather than defend sanctuary cities, as he promised to on the campaign trail, Joe Biden really hasn't done very much to support them. He's left in place cooperation agreements between local police and Immigration and Customs Enforcement or ICE. And he's even trying to convince local governments that hadn't been cooperating with ICE under Trump to start doing so now. And the justification offered by Alejandra Mayorkas, who's the head of uh, the Department of Homeland Security, is that the the agency of today and what it is focused on and what it is doing is not the agency of the past. And so I wanted to ask you to you know, talk to us about what has happened under the Biden administration with regard to cooperation between local law enforcement and ICE. And then separately, how much you think we should trust Mayorkas when he says, oh, no, no, it's a it's a totally different agency now. Let me start for that. It is absolutely not different at all. Mm-hmm. Um, the only difference that we saw at the beginning was the uh, some of the people that were at the top of uh, ICE headquarters. Um, and DHS quarters, of course, which are, happen to be the boss of ICE. Um, as a matter of fact, one of the ICE chief of staff quit, and he was actually a nice person. No. <laughs> we were able to actually talk to him reasonably, um, Tom Perry, and he quit uh, early this year. And, and we're not surprised because we have people that believe that this organization can change. Once they get there, they realize there's no way this is going to change, you know? with the purpose of harming communities, large communities. Why on earth would this change? And um, the second part is, if, if law enforcement has to stop collaborating with ICE in many places, it's not because law enforcement wants to. It's because the constituents of those places have fought to stop those collaborations. Yeah. We have a state after state after state passing laws or cities for many years now saying, no, this is not the purpose of our law enforcement. This is not what I should be doing. And we're against uh, this harm uh, to our communities. And, that, and that's what the Biden administration is to understand. If there's so many states and so many localities saying, no, we don't want this to happen, they should be listening and respecting those, those um, um, authorities that, you know, states do have the right to choose what kind of enforcement they're going to allow their local enforcement to engage with. They're not supposed to be forced to be collaborating with federal enforcement, especially with civil enforcement. 
I wanted to ask you, Maru, I mean, since we're talking about some, well, what we expected to be contrasts between Biden and Trump that haven't really materialized. And I wonder, you know, like in terms of organizing, in terms of organizing resistance and in terms of sort of reaching people politically, how is it different to be active under a president like Trump, who is just openly hostile, openly hostile to even the idea of immigration, openly racist? You know, it's it's very easy to see what kind of animal you're dealing with in Donald Trump. In Joe Biden and and with a lot of Democrats, you have people who come into office making a lot of promises and saying that they want to do these good things, that they want to um, create a pathway to citizenship for DACA for DACA members, that they want to, you know, allow more immigration. And yet, you know, as we've been documenting, it has been a pretty disappointing performance by this administration so far. How do you. How do you confront someone who is not openly hostile, but who is constantly saying, oh, well, I really want the best for you, but my hands are tied? Is it is it actually in some ways more difficult? It is. We figured uh, when we joined the fight to stop Trump from being reelected, we knew that uh, we would be facing a harder fight, especially because a lot of people want to believe that a Democratic uh, administration equals justice. Yeah. And equals equity, right? And it doesn't. Um, it makes it more difficult. You know, most most people in the United States, they they believe that changing in administration, like going out and vote every four years, solves the problem. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't. You know, that's part of our work to create political education to make people understand that the changes don't come from the administrations. They come from us. Mm-hmm. And we have to continue pressuring the administrations to do what they're supposed to be doing in favor of our communities. So, yes, it is more difficult. It's also more difficult because they tend to use even our language. You yeah. know, they, tend, they co-opt our, our, our work and our wins, and they use it against us. Um, and so it is, it is way more difficult. But to us, at the end of the day, it shows um, very easily that um, these, these politicians, they lie all the time. You know, they promise whatever they want. Remember, Biden won because of the black and Latinx votes. Mm-hmm. And and yet, it seems that he totally forgot about it, and he's coming after our communities. Mm-hmm. We won't forget, and we continue pushing in our communities to make people understand, you know, whenever uh, it's time for you all to vote again, we won't tell you uh, that you need to vote for, for Biden. We will remind, remind Biden that he's there because of us, and he could lose the, the, the seat because of us. Yeah. And it does seem like uh, the Democrats are are starting to lose Latino voters. Uh, is, is this what you're seeing also? Definitely. And, and, and in another way, that is very dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. Have uh, ultra right wing Latinos running for office. Like, look at Texas, you know, mm-hmm. this absolutely horrible races going on. And we really expect that uh, some of the good uh, Latinx that are running, regardless of party, would win. But it is, that's the danger that the Democratic Party is creating. It has created. That's why Trump won in the first place, right? Yeah. Because the Democratic Party has no backbone, and they allow for these right-wingers to, to take over. Because, you know, living in a country where we only have two parties, I mean, we, we, we're screwed either way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. You know, I just noticed that Antony Blinken, haven't heard from him on Ukraine in a little while. That's because he's in Panama. Talking to the I forgot all about him. Exactly. Talking to the government of Panama about <laughs> migration and protection. So 
Yeah, uh, that was Maru Mora Bialpando. She's the founder of La Resistencia. She's an advocate for uh, immigrant rights and she's a community organizer. Maru, we really appreciate you joining us for this conversation. Uh, where do you want our listeners to go to find more of the work that you're doing right now? Thank you. Yes, uh, we are La Resistencia NW.org mm-hmm. and we're in social media as La Resistencia NW, NW for Northwest. Mm-hmm. We welcome any donations and any support. We're a totally volunteer-run organization, and we appreciate the invitation, of course. Yep. Thanks so much, Mara. We'll talk to you again soon. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C., and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Michelle, um, I know that you're a fan of uh, of Latin American cultures, like I am too. And um, I've been fortunate to have traveled to Chile. Um, been all over South America. Chile is an incredible place. I could live there. The food is great. The people are great. It has an incredible history. Um, it's got like the longest beach in the world. As you say, lots of coast there. Yeah. Lots of, <laughs> lots of drama, lots of uh, waves, lots of coast. Yeah. Yeah. And they are, um, in a very important historic political period right now. They have a constitution that was written, uh, during the, um, the Pinochet era. And that constitution has been used to crack down on pro-democracy movements ever since it was passed into law in 1980. Pinochet left power in 1989. He died in whatever it was, 1993, I think. Not soon uh, enough. Yeah, not (laughs) soon enough. And um, and they... uh, they're just now getting around to finally redrafting the Constitution. And I also think when you talk about the political moment that Chile is in, I think it is important to remember that it, there was a lot of buildup to, you know, the, the presidential mm-hmm. election last year where they elected a young, you know, sort of relatively leftist president. Right. But before that, there had been, you know, street protests about uh, school fee increases. There were protests about transportation. So, again, I think anytime, anytime a country sort of uh, arrives at a pivotal political moment, I think it's important to remember that it, it wasn't bestowed upon the people by politicians. That's right. It was enacted by the people. You know, it was it was forced usually from the streets. That's right. And that it's usually presented to us in the reverse. The right. Oh, yes. it's, uh, liberals gave you this. Liberals gave you that. They didn't. Nobody gives you nobody gives you anything no. ever. No, yeah. you have to take your rights yeah. rather than just to uh, to have it. Uh, thank you. Mark Loker, one of our listeners from uh, from Indianapolis, is correcting me on the dates. Pinochet was arrested traveling to Spain in 1998. So maybe I'm a decade early. He mm-hmm. maybe died in like 03. Because I remember being in, in Santiago on my honeymoon and making a very bad joke by asking a waiter where Pinochet was buried, knowing that he was still alive. Oh, yeah. That does, that's not a good joke, John. No. Wow. You were in Santiago on your honeymoon. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Went to Santiago, went to uh, Buenos Aires, Montevideo, Ciudad del Este in Paraguay, and uh, and uh, Iguazu, both on the Brazil side and the Argentine side. And then we took a boat to Antarctica. 
Sounds like a great trip. I should get married fun, sometime and try fun, it. Fun. <laughs> now, <laughs> you like know that. what? Just get a friend and go on the trip. <laughs> All right, good. I'm yeah. set then. I'm set. Yeah. But anyway, they, they've worked very, very hard um, on this constitution. That's what we're going to talk about with our next guest. So Chileans last year voted in a national referendum to rewrite the constitution. That's what's been happening at a constitutional convention this week. Discussions continue over whether to either reform or eliminate the Senate, as well as a myriad of other issues. The Senate issue, in my view, is is one of the most important things that they're taking up. The convention has until May the 17th to finish a rough draft, and then it's going to go to a commission for fine tuning. They'll put it to a national referendum then in September. I think it's on September 4th. So we're going to talk about that with Dennis Rogiatuk. He's a writer, journalist and political analyst based in London. Dennis um, has had his work appear in the Tribune, the Green Left Weekly, Telesaur, Lynx, International Viewpoint, and a whole bunch of other publications. Welcome back, Dennis. Oh, it's, it's great. It's great to be back on uh, Sputnik there. On great Mr. to have Radio, you. On, on the Mr. Show. Thank you so much. Uh, Dennis, tell us a little bit about uh, Chile's constitutional convention. The most important aspect in, in my mind is this this conversation about what to do about the Senate. But opponents of reform say that doing away with the Senate will strip geographic regions of their power. Is that a real concern? Well, not at all, actually. I mean, if we, if we really look at the way that, uh, uh, say, the power is, well, say, say the power of, of the Senate itself and the distribution of seats is allocated right now in Chile, it is, uh, I'll say, it is overwhelmingly determined more by the reactionary polit- political force. I mean, I mean, we only have to look at the results of the, uh, of the previous election, whereby uh, despite, despite the fact that uh, you know, the, the various center-right, right-wing, and the far-right political po- forces lost in both rounds of the election, they still end up with uh, controlling almost um, half of the Senate. So the, 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 so the, kind of the electoral distribution is extremely uneven. It actually prioritizes uh, those areas, those geographic areas, uh, which which have traditionally, you know, high income populations, or the which traditionally have which traditionally, uh, you know, vote uh, for the center right or the conservative um, uh, political parties, and it actually in some ways discriminates against uh, the, the territories, particularly in the center and the north of the on, in the north of the country, uh, which have been which have which have yield, traditionally yielded uh, more progressive and left wing. Uh, results. So a so so uh, an abolition of the Senate will actually be a step forward in this case, and this is something. And this is what I believe has um, uh, you know was actually inspired by uh, other examples of constitutional conventions and constitutional assemblies across Latin America, such as the case of uh, Ecuador and uh, and Venezuela. Both of these, since uh, both of these. Uh, uh, process have also, have also resulted in foundations of a new uh, kind of national assemblies uh, where the, uh, uh, say, the political representation is a far better matches uh, the actual, the, uh, say, say, the representation of the, of the country, regardless of the, uh, of, like it's, of the geographic allocation. Dennis, um, it seems like much of the work being done is aimed at repairing the damage that was done by the Pinochet government. The plebiscite that ended his rule was in 1989, and there have been numerous large-scale 
protests, even riots in the interim. What's taken the country so long to make these changes? We must understand that uh, despite the fact that Pinochet was uh, was defeated in the, in the 1989 plebiscite, uh, the this did not fundamentally change the uh, I would say the economic uh, structure of Chile. We have to we have to remember that uh, effectively the economic, despite the fact that the, uh, the the military junta itself uh, lost political power in the country, the economic power still remained with the old elites, which. Uh, which supported Pinochet and his um, and his Chicago Boys program of privatization of uh, privatization and um, uh, you know, implement, implementation of implementation of uh, neoliberalism. So Chile was the first country to be experimented on with the neoliberalism, and this can still be seen uh, seen in the, um, in the in the social fabric uh, of the country. Not to, not to mention the massive influence of the multinational corporations from. From the from the United States in uh, in the, in the key sectors of the economy, especially in uh, the case of the mining sector and the uh, the copper and the co- copper industry, particularly. So it has been a difficult task in trying to implement a fundamental systematic change in the country, precisely uh, precisely because the economic elites managed to entrench themselves to such a, to such an extent um, that. Uh, uh, you know their, their their control of the sort of the, the you know the the key sectors of the economy and the media in, in particular have basically kind of shielded uh, them uh, against any kind of radical change up until the moment. It wasn't until the mass protests that began in October 2019 that uh, you know a kind of a new hegemony arose in the country. Uh, kind of a, a hegemony that was you know didn't just aim for uh, you know, for, for reforms, but rather for systematic, for systematic change and the change of the constitution. Tell us a, a little bit about that. Many, many Chileans have been victims of government violence over the years, even well into the post-Pinochet era. What effect do you think this has had on the writing of the new constitution? Many of these victims are delegates to the convention or they're employed as staff members to delegates. Have, have they been able to impact the actual drafting of the document? I believe yes. Uh, if we look at the articles which have been approved so far uh, by the Constitutional Convention, we can le- we can really see uh, the uh, you know a lot of the key demands, a lot of the key social demands of the pro- of the protests of, of the last couple of years being implemented there. I believe that there are three uh, key, uh, I'll say three three key articles or so series of articles which should be mentioned. Number one is that uh, chill in the new constitution. Chile is recognized as a plurinational state, uh, you know, in a similar um, uh, expression as the as as the constitutions of of Bolivia and of or of Ecuador. Or Ecuador. This is, this has been a key demand of the social movements in Chile, not just in the last couple of years, but in, you know, for decades, as the um, as uh, Chile's uh, you know first nation first nations have been uh, you know fighting for. Recognition of sovereign sovereignty. Oh, uh, good point. Well, since 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 the, since the arrival of the, of the Spanish, uh, particularly. So, uh, so the fact that the new con- convention is recognizing Chile as a plurinational state and thus giving the sovereignty and the rights to the peoples of the of the various people of the First Nations, uh, that includes the Mapuche, the, the Mapuche, the the Quechua, uh, the uh, Koya, and so many other many other nations, is a huge 
uh, step forward. Uh, number two is the recognition of uh, Chile as an ecological state. This is uh, quite uh, quite important in the context of, uh, I say, say Chile's geographical uh, position, since um, uh, Chile is kind of, is, is been considered as a prime candidate for a transition towards a green economy. Uh, so, the, and 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 it has been like a has been a key, uh, say, demand of the environmentalist and the ecological movement. And of course, the the third point is the uh, is, the, is the various social rights, uh, which uh, which have been sort of at the forefront of the of the mass protests. That is, you know, the right the you know the right to social services, the right, the right to transport, the right the right to healthcare, the right, the right to housing, uh, the right to uh, com- you know communication and the the media, um, and the right the right to actually you know participate the media. As well as, of course, the, the recognition of new demo, new democratic rights. Uh, that is the um, the ability to convene referendums and plebiscites against uh, various against the um, uh, I say various elected uh, officials, whether mm-hmm. they be on the national level, regional level, or or, lo- or local level. Uh, so so far so far we have seen a, gr- a great amount of progress uh, being done in these areas in the in the convention. However, we've also seen a, a massive onslaught against the convention on the part of the uh, of the political or the right-wing political opponents uh, of the convention, as well as uh, say their uh, their communicational arm in the country's corporate media. Dennis, another major issue that's being debated this week uh, is whether or not to include what they're calling unrestricted respect for human rights uh, in the new constitution. What exactly does that mean? And do you think that that such a, a measure will pass? I believe a lot of this has been re- inspired by the state repression against the social movements and also by the historic memory of the, uh, of the Pinochet dictatorship. We have to, we have to remember that although um, the dictatorship uh, ended more than 30 years ago. The, a great, to, to a great extent, the perpetrators of the human rights abuses in Chile have not have not been punished to the extent that you know their victims uh, had had desired. So there have been uh, few cases of of the of the perpetrators actually facing justice. Yes, the Pinochet's uh, dictatorship. This, the, but but. On the other hand, also the uh, the state the amount of state repression that's been faced by the pro- by the protesters in the last a couple of years that is the you know there's the assassinations uh, mutilations of uh, protesters you know arrests uh, torture have really also exposed the extent to the, the extent to which uh, uh, Chile kind of still struggles with the legacy of Pinochet you know. Yeah. The, that the that the country's police forces and the state security state security forces still maintain the same kind of mentality and still uh. maintain the same uh, kind of uh, tactics which they used under Pinochet. So uh, the so this measure is a is a, is in a way would, would pave the way towards the demilitarization of the police and the reform of the of the state security forces uh, in order to. Uh, uh, well, say in, in order, you know, finally, rid, it rid itself of the uh, of the uh, practices uh, of the military dictation. I believe that I, I believe that's much like the um, uh, the recognition of Chile as a plurinational state. This measure will also pass. 
Mm -hmm. uh, simply because of the amount of, uh, I'll say, disgust across the in the Chilean society in the Chilean society against the tactics of uh, that the Chilean state employed in the last couple of years against against the mass protests. I was surprised to see, pleasantly surprised to see that uh, of the delegates to the Constitutional Convention, 77 are men and 77 are women. That's wonderful. Workers are well represented. Yes. The Chilean media also say that of the 50 delegates who are members of political parties, all the rest are independent, 37 are members of pro-Pinochet political parties. Tell us what effect you think mm. these pro-Pinochet delegates will have on the whole process. Is their participation a problem at all? Well, to be, well, uh, to be honest, uh, if the convention, when, when the delegates were elected to the convention in May, in May last year, there was certainly some concern uh, mm. whether you know the right Chile, Chilean right wing, you know the pro Pinochet, the pro Pinochet and neo Pinochet, and those who are say nostalgic for Pinochet, would would be able to uh, you know have an impact on the convention. Right. Uh, now these these kind of forces, although although they do have you know their, their groupings and their delegates, but they ha they fail to achieve uh, one th one third of the seats required to block uh, or veto or delay any articles of discussion in the convention. So I would actually I would actually argue that their impact in the convention so far has been symbolic, mm. more symbolic rather than um, uh, practical. Mm -hmm. uh, they still have. I mean, they, I mean, they still serve in some ways as the uh, as kind of a, a kind of megaphones for the uh, for the right wing inside within the, within the convention. They still have their platforms in the media, and they still speak out against uh, you know the measures and the reforms undertaken by the convention. But in terms of the actual voting power, uh, it's it has been quite um, moderate. I'll say it hasn't. It really has not impacted uh, the proceedings of the convention. Uh, so far, and this is evident in the language of the new of the new new articles. I mean, the fact that the fact that the fact that uh, the convention uh, wrote approved an article which recognized Chile as a plurinational state speaks uh, a lot about that. Since this was actually considered to be the hardest uh, measure to, uh, uh, to to implement. One last question for you, Dennis. The Chilean media report. Uh, that mining interests are concerned about the Constitutional Convention. I was very interested in this. They say that the Constitution yes. will allow government interference in mining. Um, when I went into the research, uh, that's not at all what, what the delegates to the Constitutional Convention are advocating. They're not advocating interfering in mining. They're advocating um, uh, the position that uh, the natural resources of the country are for the country and for the people rather than for independent mining companies. Uh, how do you think this will be resolved? This is, uh, this is an interesting point indeed because uh, this, once again, once again, I'd like to uh, call back on the, uh, the constitutional process in, uh, in Bolivia um, is, that was, that was concluded more than uh, a year ago and where the similar question also Arose and a similar kind of article was also finally implemented in the, in the Bolivian Constitution, where uh, the natural resources of the country were also recognized as being, uh, say, the um, kind of kind of the kind of the common wealth of uh, of the people of Bolivia. And I believe those the same language is being used in the case of uh, in the in the case of Chile. Mm -hmm. It has been, I believe, 
I believe this article is being left deliberately vague as to as to as to how well the resources, natural resources, will actually be, uh, you know, uh, distributed or how their use will be distributed across the country. I pers- I personally believe that. Uh, it, the the question I'll say, I'll say the question of the uh, state control of natural resources, especially copper and lithium, has traditionally been quite sensitive in um, in Chile. We uh, we have to remember that uh, you know the, the nationalization of uh, co- of the copper industry was one of the uh, you know key reforms of uh, uh, government, and all was also but, all, but it was also one of the key contributors to the eventual coup uh, again against them. And mm-hmm. the mining industry, which is, which is of course, you know, uh, see the, the home ground of a large number of multinational corporations from Canada, from the United States, from Australia, from other countries, would be very much opposed to any kind of state interference in affairs. I believe, I believe that this can be, this can be resolved in a in a in a manner similar to how this was resolved in the cases of both uh, Bolivia and Ecuador. That is, instead of a of the nationalization of the um, Natural resources. What you will actually see is a is an implementation of a new super super profits tax system, whereby uh, the corporations and multinationals will no longer enjoy a kind of a low tax uh, climate atmosphere which they have right now, and will and will instead be forced to pay uh, say a much more significant amount amount of taxes. If we, um, in the case of Bolivia, in the case of Bolivia, the uh, the, tax, the actual taxes on super profits of mining companies and multinationals is approximately eighty three percent. Whether whether in the case of Chile, they would be able to implement similar measures, uh, I believe I believe is uh, we, we yet to see. But overall, overall, I believe I believe the, the battle for the copper and the battle for the lithium will definitely be the hardest ones yes. uh, uh, to resolve. Yeah, we're talking about an awful lot of money here. We'll leave it there. That was the voice of Dennis Rogatiuk. I'm sorry, Dennis, I always mispronounce your name. Dennis Rogatiuk, he's a writer, journalist, and political analyst based in London, and his work has appeared all over the place. Based in Latin America. (laughs) Based in Latin Latin America, America, not in London anymore. Good. Uh, He's been in the Tribune, the Green Left Weekly, Telesaur, Lynx, International Viewpoint, and many other publications. Michelle, it's been a busy day. There's been a, a lot going on. And uh, there's still a lot going on. What you got for me? I've been watching uh, this. It's it's kind of flown under the radar so far, but um, there's been a movement to throw Marjorie Taylor Greene off the ballot. Uh, you know, I told you yesterday that she got 75% when she ran for election two years ago. And there's no way a Democrat's ever going to win that seat. Just no way. Uh, she has no serious uh, Republican opposition in the primary. And so a group of people, have have taken to the courts to challenge her and Madison Cawthorn, who both made statements in support of the January 6th um, participants, whatever you want to call them. There's a provision in the Constitution that's never, ever been used before, ever in American history, that you, if you are guilty of sedition or a supporter of sedition, you are ineligible for federal office. Well, yesterday, Afternoon, a court decided, a federal court decided that their challenge to her place on the ballot can go forward. Mm. Yeah, this is kind of a big deal. Now, a week and a half ago, a different court ruled that the challenge can go forward against Madison Cawthorn. 
Not to say they're going to be thrown off the ballot, but now there's a chance that this could actually happen. It's interesting. I have a feel. I mean, I would be surprised if you get much Republican support for that initiative, because I think, you know, you're going to have to get pretty persnickety in defining what it, what is support for, what is statements yeah. of support for and right. what aren't they to not catch Quite a few other and it's Republicans up in that, in that dragnet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Whatever. Do whatever you you're want. You're going to have to then look at Paul Gosar. Sure. And then you have to look at uh, Lauren Boebert. Yeah. And maybe uh, Matt Gates. I, I mean, this is a slippery slope. We'd prefer not to look at any of them, really, no. wouldn't we? But yeah. Huh. Interesting. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene, man. It's amazing that she's not perceived as more of a liability than Cawthorn, but she yes. somehow manages to not say the outrageous things that are going to get her in trouble with her own party. Which is funny because I think she's far more dangerous than Madison Cawthorn is. Oh, yeah. I think Madison Cawthorn's just a stupid kid. Madison Cawthorn has a head full of rocks. Yeah. <laughs> Marjorie Taylor Greene Marjorie is, Taylor a, Green's dangerous. is a kook. Yeah. Uh, which isn't, you know, too nice for what she actually is. But yeah, not quite as uh, not quite as vapid necessarily as as him or uh, political. She's more politically astute, obviously. Yes. Or she wouldn't have survived this long. Yeah. You know, I remember when she was she was sort of in place to win that nomination uh, before the 2020 election. And I remember a, a TV commentator saying this woman is a follower of QAnon. There's a real chance that a QAnon supporter can become a member of Congress. And I thought, no, come on. I mean, even in Georgia, they're going to see that this is just a this bridge is too far. problem when you do. You know, I met someone the other day who, you know, after a period of conversation mentioned that he is, his brother is a big QAnon guy. Wow. And like, yeah, this is a problem when, when you do have a media that is dishonest and that does, you know, that is, you know, sometimes flatly dishonest, other times sort of, you know, blatantly on one side or another yeah. side and sort of directing its coverage that way. You know, it, it really provides fertile ground for this kind of stuff to creep in because you go, well, why not? You know, if this, if that and the other, why not? I think it's it's nonsense. And I mean, you know, why not? Is it your your uh, Trying to think of a word that's not a swear word. Your crop detector should be going off, yes. you know, when it's but, you know, some people don't have very good ones. And again, there's not a lot of uh, like. Categorical things you can point to to go, that's not true. Right. It is oh, it's simply not true that uh, pedophiles exist at the in the upper echelons of society. We can't right. say that. Right. <laughs> that's definitely not a lie. We can, there's a new documentary about Jimmy Savile. Mm -hmm. I just TV watched right it now. Yeah, I, mean, I just watched it. So yeah. it's it's rough. We have we have we have created this monster ourselves, really. And uh, we're not really doing very much to to unpick all these stitches. You know, I, I stupidly agreed to uh, give an interview to a podcaster um, a week ago this weekend. And I had sort of vaguely known her. I had given her an interview several years ago and she called me and said, hey, you've written a lot about pedophiles in the prison system. Uh, can can we do an interview? I said, sure. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. So I had to sort of keep talking her down through the course of the of the interview. And then when she finally got to, you know, Hillary Clinton and John Podesta drinking the blood no, of children. No. I said, look, this is done. We're, we're done here. Yeah. I can't do this anymore. And then afterwards, it bothered me more and more after it was done. And I texted her and I said, please don't call me again. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty nutty. But there are a lot of people out there 
who believe this kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a guy that, that I actually like. I've been on his podcast a couple of times and he said, you know, I reread those Podesta emails and they're clearly talking about child sacrifice. And I said, no, they're clearly talking about ordering a pizza. Yeah. When they say let's order pizza, that means let's order pizza. It doesn't mean let's sacrifice a child. I couldn't have put it better myself, John. <laughs> Hey, by the way, oh, well, I, I wanted to mention Lucky Charms, but uh, be careful if you're eating Lucky Charms, folks. FDA is investigating. They might give you, I think it's salmonella. Oh, not gonna, no. Not going to double check that because we are out of time. Thanks to everyone who joined us today. <laughs> Thanks to our producers and engineers here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thank you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>